0: Welcome to the Bay Area Community Church Podcast. Our mission is to make passionate, maturing followers of Jesus from here to the nations. We hope you will be changed by this message and invite you to visit us in the greater Annapolis area. If you would like to learn more about our church and ministries, please visit our website at bayareacc.org. Well, good morning, everybody. Good to see you uh, we're gonna we're gonna talk about Strasbourg and the Nats in just a second. Well, I want to welcome everybody first. Welcome to everybody here. Welcome down in the chapel. If you're watching online, good to be with you. Special shout out to our campus in Odenton. Hope you guys are doing good. And also our crew over in Easton. And speaking of Easton, by the way, real quick, just a quick announcement for Easton. You know, in Annapolis over the summer, had a couple Grace Bomb info meetings. Well, I got one for you guys tonight at 7 p.m. at your church offices. If you want to come out and hear the vision, what's going on with Grace Bomb, how to perhaps get involved, I'll see you all if you can make it tonight at 7. All right. Well, the Washington Nationals are indeed going to the World Series. So for, for you baseball fans, congratulations. I will pretend to be one just for a minute. I will I will unashamedly say I am I have jumped on the bandwagon and I feel like I feel like I'm all in because I watch one hour of baseball. <laughs> it just happened to be the one hour that included the comeback victory in the series before the last one and then the first inning of the last game of this series where they scored seven runs. I was like, this is amazing. I love baseball. <laughs> and you know i had but i had to touch touch base with my baseball friends about tell me about the nats tell me about their pitching And, you know, Josh Sherlin in particular was raving about Strasburg. He's like, let me put a video together because this guy, strikeout champ, now he's NLCS champ and his contract was huge. And this dude and many others on the Nats have an amazing scouting report, an amazing report card, ERA, RBI, strikes, that whole thing. And I just got to thinking that we're so in touch with this, you know, these good reports and scores in sports, we know where those those things lead. So if you're on a team and most of the people on your team have good statistics, like good personal individual statistics, it's going to lead to probably good team stats, right? It should, and then you're going to have more wins than losses, and that's going to carry you further down perhaps into the playoffs and all the way maybe to the championship, whatever the championship might be. That's just how we experience sports. And so there's this connection to winning the ultimate prize with our scorecard. And what we tend to do, whether we do it you know, intentionally or not, is we actually start to have a spiritual scorecard where we see ourselves achieving and meriting and earning with the mindset that if I get good grades on this spiritual report card, that I'm going to be in better graces with God and I might even be able to trade this thing in for heaven when I finally get there. And you might not think that that's a prevalent worldview, but think about it this way. Of the three major monotheistic religions in the world today, those three being Islam, Judaism, and Christianity, two of the three absolutely operate on the basis of a spiritual scorecard. If I score well performing these rituals and rites and pilgrimages and letting my bad outweigh my good, then perhaps I'll be able to trade that thing in for paradise or eternal life. Whereas... Christianity stands apart in that that's not quite how it works. We're going to see that today. But even some of us inside the church will begin to rely on this achievement of religious activity, thinking somehow this is going to put us in a better standing with our Creator. So we're going to dig into that because where we are in the letter to the Philippians today is Paul's going to unpack his scorecard. And if anybody had a baller status scorecard, it's Paul. Like nobody could touch this guy. And we're going to see where it got him. So we're going to dig in. But let me first read the passage that we're going to take our verses from today. So you can see it in its context here. So I'm going to be reading from Philippians chapter 3, about 10 verses. And if you haven't been with us, welcome. We're in a series called Joy in the Prison. This is the Apostle Paul writing a letter to the church in Philippi. Uh, It's joy in the prison because Paul's writing from a Roman prison around 62 AD. And regardless of the circumstances and the oppression and the opposition that he's personally facing, he's just he keeps saying, rejoice, rejoice, rejoice a whole bunch of times in the letter. Hence, joy in the prison. So, today's passage finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is of no trouble for me, and it is safe for you. Look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, Well, Heavenly Father, as we begin to look at your word today, I pray that you'd meet us wherever we might be spiritually. I pray for those of us who have not been walking with you, that you would lovingly meet us right there in that spot. Lay your word on our hearts and help us to apply it. I pray for those of us who are feeling great in our walks with you, that you would continue to energize us and propel us to accomplish more of your will. This is your spiritual heavy lifting. So we ask that you would take your word and in the power of your spirit, apply it to our hearts so that we would be changed and become more like Jesus And we pray it in his mighty name today, amen. All right, so let's do what we did last weekend, guys. I don't have skis, you know, or um, turn buoys today, but I do have the TV with some verses on it. So that's where we're going to begin. Verse 1 of chapter 3. Finally, my brothers and by extension sisters, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me, and it is safe for you. So here's what Paul's beginning to say. First, we remember that he's addressing believers, followers of Christ, brothers and sisters, in the family of God, uh, and that's pretty obvious. He's not ending the letter, but he's bringing up the last things in the letter, and he says this familiar phrase and refrain that you see all throughout Philippians, rejoice in the Lord he is also mindful that the content that he's going to now bring is going to be familiar to the saints because it's a clear message about how salvation works and what righteousness is about. And he's like this, you've heard this before, I don't care. Because I'll keep doing this every day because it's safe for you to hear these things again and again. And so he's about to bring it. But before we look at verse 2, I want you to hold something in mind here. He's about, in verse 2, he's about to talk about the very specific opposition facing the church. And in the same breath, he begins by saying, rejoice in the Lord. Which is a good reminder for us, because no doubt in some nook or cranny of your life, you have some opposition. You might have some relational opposition, might be some conflict in the home, perhaps with a spouse or maybe even a child. You might have some disappointment that's that's hitting your heart like opposition, like, come on, Jesus, I thought you would have worked that out by now. You might have some some opposition hitting you in the workplace, like the bottom line just isn't quite as as big as you were hoping it was going to be by year's end, and this quarter wasn't really the best one of all time. And what's the deal with that? You just might be having some of that, and remember that, in the face of any and all things that are negative, we can still say, rejoice. And we're going we're gonna to dig into that and see why, but I want you to keep that in mind. Okay, So verse 2, he moves into this specific opposition that's going to lead him to wanting to talk about his spiritual scorecard. He gives a threefold warning about one group of people. Look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, and look out for those who mutilate the flesh. I will admit this is probably one of the most awkward verses you might ever see if you're taking it out of context. Because you're not going up to your buddy at the bar and be like, hey, let me share with you my faith. I'm going to turn to Philippians 3 verse 2. (laughs) So what is he talking about? Well, he's talking about a specific group of people known as the Judaizers. Now, here's what was happening in the context of the church. Well, first, he calls them dogs. And a dog was a derogatory name because literally they were following Paul around, biting at his heels. Because Paul would go in, proclaim the gospel, and then this group of people would come behind and begin to unravel what he has done. Think about Paul like your you know, your everyday friendly neighborhood IT guy, and he comes into the office, and he sets up your email, and he sets up your network, and your Wi-Fi is working good, and it's all great, and then he leaves, and then the hackers come in and start messing with it. That's sort of what was happening, these people going behind him and starting to try to unravel what he's done. And in particular, he says this is Somewhat evil because they're twisting the gospel. These people are coming in and saying, okay, yeah, Jesus, yes, but also some other things. And whenever you add other things to Jesus, you're twisting the truth of the gospel. So clearly the gospel is Jesus plus nothing, but these people were saying Jesus plus ritualistic circumcision, which is what mutilate the flesh is referring to. He's basically saying these judaizers want people to be circumcised, thus becoming becoming a covenant member of, you know, the people of Israel so that they can then accept the savior. Let me diagram it for you this way just so you can see historically how this thing unfolded. When the gospel hits the scene in the book of Acts, so you have the four gospels, and then you have the book of Acts, the Acts of the Apostles, how the church grew and began. In Acts chapter 2, you have all these Jewish people sitting around, and the Holy Spirit comes, and all the crazy stuff starts happening, and you realize this is a confirmation that God is recreating them and giving them a new heart. And it was amazing, because the promises and the, and the prophecies, they were all right there being fulfilled among God's people. Then craziness starts to happen in the book of Acts. The gospel goes out to the Samaritans in Acts chapter 8. And so now you have these people who weren't necessarily all the way Jewish. They were like half Jewish. They weren't all the way Jewish. But then the same things that was happening in Acts 2 was now happening among the Samaritans, which was mind-blowing because it's like, okay, Well, maybe God's saving the Samaritans the same way he's saving the Jewish people. Maybe the gospel doesn't have any racial or ethnic boundaries. And then that finally was confirmed when in Acts chapter 10, Peter has a vision to go to a man named Cornelius' house, who is a Gentile Roman guy, and they receive the gift of the Holy Spirit in Acts 10, the same way it happened in Acts 2. So Peter's mind is blown, and everybody's going crazy because the gospel has no ethnic or racial boundaries. However, There were some people who deeply were entrenched in the rituals and life of Judaism that were saying, no, before you can really come to the Messiah, you need to come back here and essentially become Jewish. You should be circumcised, participate in all those ritual activities, and then you're going to be okay. Paul's saying, no, that's not okay. Because these people are putting their confidence in external things. They're putting their confidence in what he calls the flesh. And he's about to say, check it. Uh, If anybody can put confidence in the flesh, it's me. But before he does that in verse 4, he says this in verse 3 about the identity of the church. Just to recalibrate their mindset of who they really are. So he tells them... We are the circumcision. He's making a reference to Abraham and the spiritual descendants of Abraham. He says, we worship by the spirit of God. It doesn't have to be in this temple or this place or with this ritual. We worship by the spirit because of Christ Jesus, who is the object and perfecter of our faith. And as the true circumcision, we put no confidence in human achievement, in our human ability to put ourselves in a better standing before God. He says, we put no no stock in that. Because if anybody could have put stock in that, check it. It was me. And what Paul does here, he sees fit to itemize all of the ways that he could have had confidence in his own human achievement. And he took time to list them out. So I thought it was important for us to take time to list them out. And so I actually developed my very own human achievement spiritual scorecard from Paul. And as we look at it here, uh, I'm also going to give you some keywords to help you think about it here. So this is Paul's accounting of all the things that he was putting his confidence in that was going to make him right before his creator. And so we look at it. If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day is our first little nugget here. And I will give this the term rituals or right rituals. This is Paul recognizing and realizing that all of the rituals that were prescribed by his people, he performed to a T. And we might think, well, yeah, that, you know, that's Judaism and that's their thing. But we contend at times to become very ritualistic ourselves. Case in point, I have four children. And with every baby that was born, my grandmother, bless her heart, rest in peace, Grace, she hounded me to get my babies baptized. Because for her, the, the ritual of infant baptism was so important and necessary and crucial for the plan of salvation. It led to some very good talks with Grace about what is baptism, what, it is, what is it not. But she was relentless and she never let up. You need to get that baby baptized. When is that happening? It's like for the sake of the soul of the child, you need to get your kid baptized, dude. She was talking about a ritual and we contend even in the church to look at certain rituals that say, well, if I did that, I'm gonna be in a better light with God. Then he says of the people Israel. Now, what he's speaking about here is his family tree and his heritage. Now, by all means, there was a great benefit to be of the people Israel. You actually had great advantage to be a Jew when it comes to learning and knowing and and the foretelling of the Savior. Because they had the promises, they had the prophets, they had the predictions of the Messiah who was to come, the suffering servant from Isaiah. They had all these things rich in their tradition. And so he says, "I'm I'm of God. Called out people, and he goes further to say, Of God's called out people, I'm from the tribe of Benjamin, meaning that within my very own people, I am of the tribe that has received special accolades. Meaning, this the tribe of Benjamin might not mean anything to you, but among the 12 tribes, the tribe of Benjamin bore out the first king of Israel, his name was Saul the very namesake of Saul of Tarsus who we're talking about here, who later became Paul. Also, when there was drama in Israel and the ten tribes broke up to the north and Judah remained true to God in the south, who stuck with Judah, the tribe of Benjamin did. So he says, of the people of God, I'm I'm part of the crew that gets special accolades. So he's building a great case. As you can see so far, he's got straight A's. He says, I'm a Hebrew of the Hebrews, meaning this. What that means is he has a special, significant devotion to his, to his ethnicity of being a Jew to the, to, the, to the end that he would even maintain the mother tongue which would have been Aramaic. Because in Paul's day, the Greeks were taking over the world and even Jewish people were beginning to speak Greek. These were the Hellenistic Jews. But he says, I'm sticking to the mother tongue. That's how uh, devoted I am to being uh, who I am before God with all of my effort and achievement. And then he says, as to the law of Pharisee, And I'm going to use the word here, orthodox, but when you think of Pharisee, think strictness, think the right doctrine, and the person who is just going for it, and who makes a profession of it, and who studies it, and who is the expert in it. Like the Pharisees were the top of the top as far as orthodox doctrine and practice. Once you got to Pharisee level, you were at the top, A plus, really can't jump beyond that. Maybe high priest or something like that. But you're really high up there. Now, whittling his way down to the end, he says, as as for zeal, a persecutor of the church. And I'll share about that in a minute. But what this means is he was passionate, he was zealous, he was sincere about his religion. Now, isn't it a common mindset today among culturally minded people? that as long as you're sincere and devoted to your truth, you're probably gonna be okay. Well, he was sincere and he was devoted to the point that he was persecuting the believers. And then finally, he says, as to righteousness under the law, I was blameless. Meaning this, his behavior met all the requirements. His external keeping the rules even the commandments and, the, and all of his regulations, he nailed it. Now, that, that, that doesn't necessarily speak to the internal, but externally speaking, he had the perfect behavior. This man had an A-plus on the entire scorecard. Now, here's the thing. Paul was banking on this and relying on these things to get him deep into the playoffs, winning the championship. He was depending on these things, to be righteous. And deep down, that's something all human beings are longing for. We realize that there's something not quite right, and God is something quite other, and there's a gap there, and I'm just trying to figure out how to fill the gap. And Paul, being a very religious-minded man, he was relying on these things. And so it is quite shocking what he says about his own spiritual scorecard. Are you ready for it? Now, in verse 7 and part of verse 8, Paul says, but, I nailed these things, A+. Plus. But whatever gain I had, and he was counting all of these things as a gain, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish there's two kinds of language that Paul is using here in how he now regards his spiritual scorecard. One is an accounting term. So all you numbers crunchers out there, you'll get this. He would say all of these things were, in his mind, were a great gain. That he was going to gain righteousness through A pluses on the scorecard. But now, these things are a complete zero. Complete write-off worth nothing. And then he uses another term which my kids would understand when he simply says rubbish, which can also be translated poop emoji. (laughs) Quite literally, the King James version will call this dung or dog poop. That's the Greek term. Now these aren't in and of themselves, bad things, are they? So why on earth would he say they're worthless and even the poop emoji? I asked the question, what happened to this guy? Like what switched in his mind and in his heart? Well, if you haven't heard the story, I'll tell you from Acts chapter nine, I'll just read for you what happened to the man because clearly something happened to the man because he was good at what he was doing, yes? And all of a sudden he says, but this is like zero. This is nothing. And by the way, more than him trying to rely on this for righteousness, because his lifestyle and his career were sort of merged, this is also his identity. And you might be able to relate on another level in ways that your identity is being formed outside of the surpassing worth of Christ. Well, here's what happened, and you can read this later for yourself, but I'll just share a few verses of what happened in Acts chapter nine. But Saul, Saul of Tarsus is who we're talking about, but Saul, still breathing threats and murder, against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues, and, and, and he got them, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So meaning, let me pause there, meaning he got permission from the highest court in Judaism to go down to the synagogues and rip people out who were followers of Jesus and bring them back bound to the city for judgment and perhaps even for death. Now, as he went on his way, keep that in mind. Like this is currently the state of his affairs, okay? As he went on his way, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven Shown around him and falling to the ground, heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, but rise and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. This is the account of when Paul came to see for himself that Jesus, who he had known to be killed, buried, is now alive. He came to see that Jesus is quite, in fact, a real person who can offer real help. And I would submit to you that two very big things hit. Paul's heart, we call him Paul because a few chapters later he changes his name to Paul. A few really big things hit Paul's heart and changed him forever that, that woke him up to the realization that this is quite not how it works with God. And I want to share those two things with you. The first big thing that hits Paul is this realization righteousness is a gift. You see, Paul's intention from doing all this was a good intention. He wanted to be right before God. But the problem is the reason that we're not right before God is of, because of sin. And we cannot achieve or earn or merit anything here that could actually remove our sin from our souls. It just doesn't work that way. And when he saw the living Jesus, it was probably like a nuclear explosion because think of all of his training in the Old Testament and all of the prophets who would have been coming to mind and the sacrificial system and the Passover lamb and all of these things that were pointing to Jesus. And now upon meeting Jesus, he realizes the Messiah that was predicted and promised has come fulfilling the law, and only through him can I receive a gift of righteousness. You see, it wasn't like Paul was just doing religious stuff and then meets Jesus and then scratches his head and says, well, it looks like Jesus is just a better option than religion. So I'm just going to go with Jesus. That's not what happened. Paul says, Jesus is the way to get what I was trying to get with religion and being made right with God. He is the way because he is God who lived a perfect life, died a sacrificial death, paid a penalty of sin, and then gives that to me freely. That changes people who have been trying to earn and work and merit and achieve. There's freedom in that. And this is why he goes on to say... For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ the righteousness of god that depends on faith and this man oh man when he when this settled in he went on a tear homeboy wrote most of the new testament and he unpacked some of this stuff in some amazing ways For example, Romans chapter 4. He takes a whole chapter to show us how Abraham was declared righteous by faith before the circumcision even happens. Meaning it wasn't about the rituals that you are to perform. It was about the faith in the promise of God that saves you. And it was like, this is the whole story. Oh, and did he ever love to tell it? And did it ever change his heart? But I will submit something else to you today that I believe hit Paul and changed his life forever. And this is the second big hit. The second big hit is that Paul met on that road to Damascus unconditional love. Because there is something... Inside of us that is longing for love and perhaps even through our rituals and our heritage and our devotion, our orthodoxy, our sincerity and our behavior, we're thinking if I can just do and perform, I can earn the love of my creator. But think about where Paul was when Jesus came to him. In kindness, really. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He was on his way to murder Christians. Let that sink in. Put it in today's context. One of the most atrocious and evil things that we see on the news is when some terrorist or maniac or somebody hungry for blood or or hate goes into a place of worship and kills people. And it doesn't matter what worldview you hold to or what religion you're brought up in or where that happens. When you see that, humanity is appalled at the atrocity of when a peaceful, loving environment of innocent people are broken into. He was on his way with letters to rip people out of synagogues. Like this is who he was, okay? Make that cultural connection. And on his way, he meets love incarnate. Not a God who hit him with a lightning bolt and killed him, not a God who sent a snake to poison him and slowly kill him, but a God who says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? I'm Jesus. It's the kindness of the Lord that leads us to repentance. What does this mean practically, just as an aside? (laughs) It means it doesn't matter what threats, what murders, what uh, R-rated, X-rated, triple X-rated. It doesn't matter what backstabbing evil and atrocity you've done. When you meet Jesus, you come face to face with love. And it's not that he doesn't care about your sin and evil. Oh, he does. You see, it breaks his heart the most. But out of love, he takes that evil and sin and rebellion, and he takes it upon himself, and he hangs on a cross in agony and pain, bearing the full weight and wrath of God for all of that because he loves you. Paul met a love that you don't have to work for and earn and merit, and it changed him forever. He goes on to write, well, who can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus? Can peril or sword or naked or famine or, or prison or tribulation or height nor depth or ocean? Can anything separate you? No, he loves you more than you will ever know. In the days that you're leaning into him and in the days you're leaning away from him, he cannot love you anymore. Isn't that amazing? This is the God who created the universe, who puts his love on display because he wants to be with you. And this is where Paul ends up he ends up with a few applications for what does that mean for us today? All of this conversation. For those of us who have been met by unconditional love, here's some application in the following verse. He says, why count all these things as rubbish? I'm not relying on any of this as my identity or what's earning my, my way to heaven because I'm trading that in to know him. This is what life's about, to know our creator and to walk with him. Not just to know about Jesus, not just to know of Jesus, not just to be able to spout out some sayings of Jesus. I mean, even the demons can do that. But to know Jesus is to know him like a friend, know him like a best friend. The person you talk to, the person you learn from, the person you trust, and the person you will go out of your way to obey because of their loyalty to you. To know him. So that is our goal. We actually do have a a new scorecard, but it's not to earn or achieve. We have a spiritual scorecard that says, well, I've been given the gift of righteousness. I've met unconditional love, so I just want to know this Jesus more. And I want to be this Jesus to other people. And to do so, I'm going to need his power. The power of the resurrection in my everyday life. Last week, if you were here, we talked about leaning into those turn buoys. And and he's going to bring us by these areas of our life that we're going to have to lean into. Well, it's his power that allows us to lean into those things. And so when you're going to be Jesus to people, to your spouse, when in the middle of a conflict, to your kids, when you're tired, to your boss, when you've been betrayed, to your employees, when you don't have anything else to give... When you want to live out Jesus because you would know him, you're going to need to avail yourself to his power. The same power that resurrected him from the dead lives inside of you, friends. You're dangerous people living in this world. It's in there. You have everything you need in you to be a powerful, powerful person. And what that is going to amount to, where that, where that ends up is going to be often in suffering. You're like, oh, I'm, now I'm checked out, Linnell. <laughs> uh, uh, you had me at power. I'm not into the suffering. But to know Christ and to avail yourself to his power is going to lead you into sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Not that you need to die on a cross to, to atone for sin. He's done that. However, as his follower, you are called to take up your cross daily and follow him. Suffering often means giving of yourself, self-sacrifice, self-denial, so that others could see his power in you and come to know him. This is our new scorecard. And humbly, Paul avails himself to that, that he would then be able to participate in this glorious, glorious resurrection. So is that your spiritual scorecard today, friends? To know Jesus because he has completed everything for righteousness for you. To avail yourself to his power and to be willing to suffer even if it means you don't get your way. Because maybe, just maybe, despite what culture says, despite what the popular people say, driving the fancy cars and the big boats, the big houses, just maybe, you know, the people hanging out in Ibiza and living the life, just maybe God's way is the best way. And maybe you need to step out in faith and trust that again and see what he has in store for you. So those are some applications for for those of us who have encountered his unconditional love. But in closing, I'd also like to say this. Some of us in here or at the other campuses, this might be us today. (laughs) We may have been operating under the principle of human achievement that's somehow going to outdo what Jesus did on the cross. And can I appeal to you today to trade this thing in for his righteousness through faith. And so here's how I'd like to close. I, I, I'm going to dismiss here in just a second to all the campuses so that the campus pastors can stand up and close in prayer. In particular, to pray for those perhaps who've been clinging to a scorecard, who have thought that somehow through my, my self-righteousness, God will accept me. Well, we're going to pray a prayer of trading that in to humbly and thankfully accept the free gift of righteousness that God offers through Jesus. And so we're going to pause now to allow the campus pastors to come forward and to pray with their, their groups. So if you guys are here this morning, right with me, and this is you, or you're online, I want to pray. You can pray right where you are a prayer to trade this in for the gift of righteousness in what Christ has accomplished for you. And if you are in Christ, as I'm praying, I pray that you'd pray along with me and even contemplate knowing him, where his power is at work in your life, and if you're ready to share in the sufferings that he will lead you to. So let's pray together. Heavenly Father, We acknowledge that we're not righteous. We admit that this is because of the sin that we so readily commit and embrace. Today, we want to trade what we've been trying to accomplish for the free gift of salvation that you offer. So right in this moment, I surrender my heart to you, Jesus. I believe, Jesus, that you are who you claim to be, the way to righteousness. Come into my life now. Forgive me of my sin and help me to walk with you with a new purpose and a new power to do your will Help me to grow in this loving relationship. Surround me with people who will help me learn and help me to know you more, Jesus. I pray this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Hey, if by any chance you did pray that, I'd love to talk to you. I'll be up here. Feel free to come give me a hug or a high five. Love you guys. See you next weekend.